Next, this month's special series, Focus on Heart Health. Throughout the month of February, ReachMD talks with experts about new medications, technologies, and treatment guidelines in cardiac care. Though innovations in surgical technology and anesthetic techniques have greatly improved the outlook following cardiac surgery, we must remain attentive to the possibility of post-operative complications. One area of concern includes adverse neurologic outcomes. What are the key considerations for evaluating cognitive changes following a cardiac procedure? Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Heart Health. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon. And our guest is Dr. Jose Biller, Professor of Neurology and Neurological Surgery at the Loyola University Chicago Stritch School of Medicine and Chairman of Neurology at Loyola University Health System. Welcome, Dr. Biller. Thank you for having me. Dr. Biller, when we talk about cognitive decline, what exactly does that mean? Well, as you well know, cardiac procedures are being performed on an increasingly aged population, often with significant comorbidities. And therefore, it is important to review not only the proper diagnosis of neurologic events, but also the strategies that are used to reduce the potential occurrence of these events. And during the different types of cardiac surgical interventions, including coronary artery bypass graft, heart valve replacement, cardiac transplantation, percutaneous coronary interventions, electrophysiological studies, surgical techniques for congenital heart disease, and others, there is always the potential risk of cognitive impairment. In other words, changes in cognition, changes in memory, changes in executive function. What's the most common deterioration that you see? Is it memory? Is it uh, cognitive function? Is it ability to communicate? What's the most common? By and large, when we talk about this type of dysfunction, we try to recognize what is called early and delayed cognitive impairment. What does that mean? What we mean by that is that certain degree of neurocognitive decline is common after cardiac surgery. It has been reported from 7 to 49% at 3 months and up to 33% after 1 year. And the most type of neuropsychological decline is that it is possible that during the type of surgery, certain particles of microemboli, of tiny emboli, may lodge to the brain during cardiopulmonary bypass, and those can affect the short or long-term cognitive function of those individuals. Now, are these microthrombi, or are these actually fragments of cells and debris? It could be either. Now, the good news is that when you look at the incidence of cognitive decline at discharge from surgery, at six weeks from surgery, 
at six months from surgery and five years from surgery, there is a substantial decline in the incidence of that impairment. So in other words, things get better, fortunately. But the cognitive function at discharge is a predictor of long-term function. Now, how can you differentiate between these types of cognitive decline from these embolic phenomenon from just uh, the anesthetic or from the disease process itself or even lability of blood pressure during a cardiac procedure? Uh, Precisely. Uh, One of the challenges when people who have cardiac surgery is that with the improvements in technology, with the great advances in surgical and anesthetic techniques, we have reduced the mortality related to these cardiovascular procedures, but as yet, we have these potential complications, for example, strokes that can complicate cardiac surgical procedures in up to 6% of patients, but as we insinuated earlier, we are operating nowadays in individuals that are much older than in the past, and often with significant comorbidities, and therefore all of those are considerations that need to be taken into account when those patients suffer from sequelae. Do you see this as much in children when you operate for congenital heart disease? The situation with congenital heart disease is a very interesting one because obviously if you look, for example, in children, up to a fourth of the ischemic strokes in children result from cardiac disease. And nowadays, these types of surgeries are accomplished at the very early stage of life. And we know that there are certain complex congenital heart lesions, particularly those that have a right-to-left shunting with cyanosis, are more prone to cause stroke, but stroke has been described with most type of cardiac lesions and certainly is more common among those children who had uncorrected congenital heart disease. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and our guest is Dr. Jose Biller, Professor of Neurology and Neurological Surgery at the Loyola University Chicago Stritch School of Medicine and Chairman of Neurology at Loyola University Health System. We're discussing long-term neurological outcomes following cardiac surgery. Dr. Biller... Except for the very overt postoperative neurologic sequelae, how exactly do you measure, how do you define in these postoperative patients whom are intubated postoperatively and certainly have a lot of medications on board, how do you determine that there's a real problem? Well, this is a very, very important point that you are making. These are complex patients, and certainly after extubation, it is not uncommon that a person may emerge from anesthesia with some agitation 
or some degree of combativeness. So that could be part of the anesthetic procedure, but it could be an indication that the patient may have had some encephalopathic injury. In general, these patients do not have evidence of a focal, motor, or sensory deficit, but you have to be very, very rigorous on your analysis because on the one hand, it can be a result of the anesthesia, it can be a metabolic or a drug-related cause that need to be ruled out, but clearly, once you exclude those possibilities, there is the possibility that these cognitive changes that we label as encephalopathy, that is a general term after, let's say, for example, coronary artery bypass graft, may be due to showers of microemboli. And if one were to obtain modern neuroimaging studies like diffusion-weighted MRI, you may see evidence of multifocal small areas of brain ischemia on diffusion-weighted MRI techniques. So there is a continuum that has to be evaluated, and certainly microembolization is one of the many possible explanations. Now, when exactly would you order some sort of imaging study postoperatively? Well, first of all, you want to make sure that whenever you transport a patient for a neuroimaging study, you want to make sure that the patient is stable, and number two, that the information that you are going to obtain really is going to change management. You want to be very careful in avoiding transporting a patient for specialized neuroimaging techniques unless they are completely stable. Oftentimes, because of their rapidity, the easy accessibility, and the fact that you can control these patients and monitor them nicely, we tend to obtain CT scans rather than MRIs early on, but subsequently MRIs may be needed because there are a variety of potential complications that need to be addressed. Now, if you see a patient that looks like they have a postoperative encephalopathy, Will you always get an imaging study, assuming they're stable? The first thing that I would look is the stabilization of the patient, and then in a parsimonious way, trying to determine whether or not the patient had any of the following categories of potential neurologic complications. Number one, could the patient have had a stroke? Number two, could the patient have had some sort of encephalopathic process? Number three, could this be a manifestation of an early cognitive compromise or could this be due to some other neurologic event? And because the incidence of clinically detectable strokes after certain types of cardiac surgery, let's say 
coronary artery bypass graft varies from 0.8% to 5%, depending on a number of factors, including whether the data were obtained retrospective or prospective, the type of operation, the age of the patient population, the sensitivity of the test performed, whether you use CT or MRI, etc. Certainly, this is something that you want to make sure that that is excluded. And the fact is that, in general, most patients, I would say two-thirds of patients who present with clinical evidence of a stroke after cardiac surgery, we tend to recognize this within the first two days after, for example, coronary artery bypass graft. The remainder are recognized later than that, a week or 10 days later. Postoperatively, is neurologic assessment done by the cardiac surgeon or is it routinely done by a neurologist? Well, as a neurologist, I would say that the best approach would be that this should be done by a neurologist or by someone who really is well-versed on the neurologic examination. And the reason I am saying that is because the deficits may not be so obvious. It's not that the patient will present with a hemiparesis or other type of focal neurologic deficit. Sometimes the cortical deficits that may occur after surgery that are secondary to embolization may affect territories in the posterior part of the brain. Those patients may have visual field deficits or a combination of a cortical visual disorientation or different types of visual field deficits, troubles with construction or troubles with reading, and therefore a very quick or elementary neurologic examination may miss those findings. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Jose Biller. We've been discussing long-term neurological outcomes following cardiac surgery. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Heart Health. For a program guide, complete list of shows, and podcasts, please visit us at ReachMD.com.